0: And to me, um, helping people understand that you cannot lead with honor without courage. And courage is leaning into the pain of your fear and doing what you know you ought to do, even though you may be scared.
1: We'll meet a former POW today on First Person. Welcome, I'm Wayne Shepard. Our guest today spent over five years in a Vietnamese prison camp. You'll hear Lee Ellis tell his story on First Person. By the end of today's conversation, you may want to know more about our guest and his book on leadership. You'll find links at FirstPersonInterview.com, along with a schedule of upcoming interviews and an archive of past interviews to listen to at your convenience. Once again, it's all at FirstPersonInterview.com. Or visit our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash FirstPersonInterview. In 1965, Lee Ellis began a career in the Air Force, and during the Vietnam War, his aircraft was shot down over enemy territory, and he became a prisoner of war. He was held in various prisons in the Hanoi area for over five years. Afterwards, he returned to flying duties with increasing positions of leadership before retiring as a colonel. He was awarded two silver stars, the Legion of Merit, the Bronze Star with Valor Device, the Purple Heart, and the POW Medal for his service in Vietnam. I met with Lee in Atlanta, Georgia, and asked him if he always had wanted to be a pilot.
0: Yes, I did always wanted to be a fighter pilot. When I was five years old, my family took me down to the uh, Veterans Park in Athens, Georgia, and I climbed up on a World War II fighter plane. And it's like, from that moment on, this That's is all where I belong. So I never gave up that dream. And huh. in the eighth grade, I recall, I sat in my homeroom was in the library, and I sat next to the A's, it turned out. So every morning for 15 minutes, I would pull out aircraft, aerodynamics, aeronautical <laughs> engineering, and I would just flip through those books and read. So I was just building a foundation hmm. about what I wanted to do in the future. And uh, it was just a passion that uh, when I – Got to the University of Georgia. I got in Air Force ROTC, and and from there it was,
1: uh, it all just worked out. Isn't it amazing how God prepares a life for what's to come down yeah, the road?
0: It really is, and and I guess as a, I'd played sports. I uh, went to a small school and played in lettered in four sports, so I was competitive and kind of a warrior in ways, you know, physically and so on, so uh, being a part of the military felt good to me. It felt natural, and flying was, uh, I'd been a hunter and outdoors person, so it gave me that outdoors uh, on steroids. Mm-hmm.
1: I can only imagine how rigorous the training is, though, uh, what you went through, and this is what time period? This is before the Vietnam War, obviously. Well,
0: I went into Air Force 1965, right out of college. Okay. And uh, three days after I graduated, I was in flight school and 53 weeks later, I had my wings and an assignment that was F4C Phantom Pipeline Southeast Asia, which meant as fast as they could get you combat qualified,
1: I would be headed to the war. That's the world that we were living in at that time, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Were you fearful about that assignment?
0: No, I really wasn't. I felt like I was going to be well prepared for it. And I knew others that had been and gone through it. And uh, I heard about some who didn't make it. So I knew there was uh, real risk there and there's danger. So there's a a little bit of not fear, but just uh, awareness that uh, this is for real. This, you know, combat is going to be for real and it's not going to be playing games. So you find yourself in Vietnam flying missions. Yes. In what year? Uh, I got there in July of 1967, okay, and I had flown over. I was flying regularly, often. uh, Some missions in South Vietnam in support of the Army and the Marine Corps, close air support, and some in Laos, interdiction of trucks and bridges and that sort of thing to stop the flow of traffic from the north. But mainly over the southern part of North Vietnam, flying up and down the roads uh, and waterways, looking for trucks, and trying to stop all the movement of material, war materials, into
1: South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So help me understand, what's the level of, I mean, are you taking fire at that point when you're flying that kind of mission, or...?
0: Uh, we took fire on most missions. I was hit a couple of times, just uh, a little bullet hole in the wing,
1: that sort of thing. That'll make you stop and and think
0: Well, you know, you come back and you say, well, they they missed, they didn't get me. Of
1: course, you're a fighter pilot, (laughs) so top gun, right? right?
0: (laughs) Well, the the thing is, I had lost a couple of friends before I went down. Mm. So I knew it was real and the reality of going down was there. But you feel pretty safe in your own airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, feel you feel like you're in control of mm-hmm. things. And of course, fighter pilots like to be in control. Yeah, sort of that invincible like, feeling, right? Mm-hmm. We felt like we were in control. the uh, The particular day that I went down, uh, we were attacking some gun sites on the ground, and there was a lot of shooting that day because they were shooting at us as we came down the bombing dive. A lot of uh, tracers, a lot of flak. And then something happened right after we dropped our bombs, whatever it was. Uh, Our wingman said we were hit. Anyway, it blew into several pieces. Hmm. Fortunately, the the cockpit stayed intact and everything in it worked for the ejection process. Mm -hmm. And my partner and I in the front seat, uh, I was the junior birdman in the back right out of flight school and we were both pilots but uh, we both were able to eject safely we hadn't didn't even have communication it was uh, the airplane wasn't flying it was really
1: tumbling so there you are you find yourself on the ground after ejecting yes and things got rather dicey for you didn't they
0: well they did i was uh, had a good parachute a descent it wasn 't a very long one, but I had a good one.
1: Were you conscious and
0: thinking oh yeah i was I was working like uh like I was in the office working in a crisis, but I was working uh, checking my parachute, activating my beeper, making decisions about whether or not I would activate my uh, life preserver and slipping my parachute, trying to get to a good landing zone away from the enemy, all those kinds of things. But once I got on the ground, they were within 20 yards of me instantly and surrounded me. So there really wasn't a chance to get away. I made one radio call to my wingman and uh, said, hey, I'm on the ground. Start strafing Mm -hmm. 400 meters north to the river. I'm headed south to the river. But after the war, they said, we can't shoot that
1: accurately. They were too close to you. Yeah, So, So you had no chance.
0: No, I had no chance to get away. I really didn't.
1: Well, The whole story is told in your book, Leading with Honor, and I do want to recommend that to our listeners, and I will only hit the the very sketchiest of details here today with you, Lee, because I also want to talk about how God is moving in your life today. But were you a Christian, by the way, at this time?
0: Yes, I was. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and and what a a glorious uh, heritage that was, and to grow up in in a family where we read the Bible together, we prayed together, we went to church uh, usually two or three times a week. And uh, I had even spoken as uh, on youth day, I'd preached a sermon, you know, so I knew that God had his hand on my life. I always felt God's presence in my life and I always felt blessed and guided by God. And I, you know, I just felt like he was there and he had a purpose for my life. Yeah.
1: Well, that faith had to sustain you because you found yourself a POW in the hands of the North Vietnamese for how long?
0: Five years, four months, and two weeks, almost five
1: and a half years. (laughs) Wow. That's inconceivable to any one of us who has never gone through something like that.
0: Well, it's almost inconceivable to me, except that we did it, and some guys were there much longer. I felt like the, you know, I was probably the youngest POW in most of the time, in most of the camps, and the junior ranking. So, and there were some guys who'd been there two years when I got there, so some were there seven to eight years. Mm. In chapter one of the book, I talk about know yourself. I knew who I was in Christ. I knew I was solid in that I knew my purpose in life was to honor my heavenly father and to represent him on this earth, and that my goal, understanding my goal of, as a military person, was to live up to my duty and represent my country well. And so those kind of things, being grounded in those kind of things, really helped me sustain uh, uh, my faith and my service over those
1: years. Mm-hmm. Now, you were in the Hanoi Hilton, but that wasn't the only place that right. you were.
0: I started out there and spent nine months there in a cell that was six and a half by seven feet, about the size of a small bathroom. Hmm. Well, it was our bathroom. Yeah. We had a three and a half gallon bucket. Fortunately, it had a lid, but it was our bedroom our dining room, and our living room for the next nine months, four of us in that little cell.
1: Talk about the communication that you had with each other. I mean, you're in individual cells. Right. But you found a way to communicate?
0: Well, we didn't have any initially because it was a maximum security cell with no walls touching. But eventually some guy got up under a window and passed us the tap code, which was a five-by-five matrix. Uh, You go down and then across. So you tap the down and then you tap their cross so high would be h i would be down two and over three for the h and down two and over four for the i so it was uh two two three
1: two four h i in the five by five matrix and that's the way you communicated to your cellmates Yes. Uh, well,
0: to the sell, to the people next door. Okay. For many years, that's how we communicated to okay. the people next door. Did it of course, get passed on down the... the yes. And it would be passed down, you know, like the old gossip thing. Of course, by the time it gets down to the end, it gets uh, turned around a little bit sometimes. <laughs> so you have to over-communicate. Yeah. And that's uh, one of the points in the book is you have to over-communicate.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it taught you uh, how to to be brief with your communication too, right? <laughs> Otherwise, your knuckles will get raw.
0: Exactly. And you know what, Wayne? We had, te- we had texting shortcuts 35 years before cell phones, <laughs> let alone uh, texting. We, what was WT? That is TT. Then is TN. So we had shortcuts way back then. Uh, how bad did it get for you, Lee? Well, those first few months, I, uh, I call it confront your d- doubts and fears. And there were doubts and fears because they were threatening us with war crimes trials every day. We had a speaker in our cell. Three times a day we got propaganda, but we also got a lot of threats. And uh, you either go this way and join us,
1: or you go the other way, and we're going to try you, and you may never go home. So that was pretty serious. We'll continue talking with Lee Ellis, learning lessons of leadership today on First Person. Last week you heard us talk about the movie Not Today as well as the companion book Why Not Today with authors Matthew Cork and Ken Kemp which is all about alleviating the suffering of the untouchables the delete in India. This effort is underway in cooperation with Operation Mobilization and international ministry proclaiming Christ to the world. You'll learn more about OM in the weeks and months ahead here on First Person but you can go online right now to find out more at firstpersoninterview.com My guest on First Person today is Lee Ellis, the author of Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. Lee, as we've talked about today, was a prisoner during the Vietnam War, a prisoner of war of the North Vietnamese. And those lessons, painful as they were, have led to an interesting life for you, Lee. And I want to go back, though, and talk about this forgiveness issue. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got to be, you know, we all have to forgive at one level or another, but yours was a particularly... Difficult test. Yeah.
0: I would say that uh, anger was one of the key motivators for us every day because uh, they tried to dehumanize us. They wanted to destroy our morale and to destroy our personal self-confidence. So that was part of the, the drill there to demoralize us. And so we fought back, and there was a lot of anger about that, anger about communism, sometimes anger about a particular guard who was uh, so treated as so badly or whatever. But over time, eventually the treatment did improve some, and thanks to uh, a big effort by people back home to bring to light the bad treatment and uh, lack of uh, international meeting international requirements. Did you ever feel like you'd been forgotten? I never felt like I was forgotten, but I felt like definitely we were on the back burner hmm. because uh, Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson, stopped the bombing in 1968, and we didn't hear any bombs fall in Hanoi for three years. And that was a little discouraging. Hmm like they're sitting up here in Hanoi enjoying life. Yeah. and uh,
1: As long as you heard the bombs drop, you knew something right, was going on. That's right. And so we didn't, we didn't feel good about that. Yeah, we have to understand, you were, you were cut off. I mean, you didn't know really anything, did you? The only
0: thing we knew was what they wanted us to know. So they told us anything bad. Like, we knew that uh, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. We knew that uh, Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. So they told us the bad news. We knew about the anti-war demonstrations, which, by the way, we defended as saying that's what makes us different from you. That's why we're over here. We support uh, the right for them to protest the war. That's the kind of country we are. That's Mm -hmm. what makes us great. Mm -hmm. But... uh, we, we had some anger and bitterness, no question about it. But as the treatment started to go more to live and let live, we had time to really process and think about what we wanted to be like when we came home. And so I think most of us started really working on turning loose of the anger, turning loose of the bitterness, realizing that, you know, bitterness ruins it hurts the person who's bitter. It doesn't yeah. hurt the other yeah. person. You're
1: drinking the poison yourself. That's right. Yeah. You're
0: drinking the poison. So I think we worked very hard to, to forgive and to recognize that uh, we were actually very blessed to be walking out of there and coming home. Hmm.
1: Talk about liberation.
0: Liberation is a big thing uh, when you've been locked up five and a half years. And went years, I didn't see the sunrise or the stars. And uh, that's a, that in itself is painful for me because I'm, a, I'm an outdoors person. It was uh, everything I expected to be. Uh, there were some disappointments in the culture that you know there were no drugs in my little hometown in Commerce, Georgia, when I left to go overseas, and they were in the middle school when I came home mm. so that was disappointing. but overall, the idea of coming home and being free again and actually experiencing that was very powerful
1: How do, and the, how do you characterize the the transition period from the point of release and getting on that plane in, in Vietnam? Mm-hmm to uh, a year or more later. What, what was that time period like for you?
0: I was very focused in many ways. I had developed strong ability to focus in the POW camp, which I had not had before. Hmm. I really learned to hyper-focus um, on things that I didn't want to do. I could always focus on the things I wanted to do. And that, was, uh, that mental discipline served me well when we came home. Uh, the hardest problem I had in adjustment was just keeping up with stuff because I'd had no stuff for a long right, time. Now right. I've got sunglasses and car keys and all sorts
1: of stuff to did keep it up with. ever become overwhelming?
0: It did. Uh, when I first went back to work, I remember went going down to a place like a Lowe's or a Walmart. I, I think it was prior to them even existing. But I was looking for some shelving for my stereo stuff. And I was overwhelmed with all the decisions, all the possibilities mm-hmm. that I walked out of there. And I said, I just don't, I can't make a decision. Mm-hmm. There's just too many options mm-hmm. here. And that was a little, I thought there might be something wrong with me. And I talked to some of my buddies and they <laughs> said, no, we're having the same problem. Mm-hmm. We, we mm-hmm. haven't made a lot of decisions mm-hmm. in the last few years. Mm-hmm.
1: Lee, take a moment and characterize spiritually the transition for you. And, and looking back on that whole experience now, what, what, what was that all about? And what was God doing?
0: I had a lot of time to reflect and some of the things I saw as I reflected back in myself, and I have a pretty high ego, <laughs> you know, fighter pilots are known for being pretty <laughs> confident, but as I reflected in that cell, I was, I was able to go back and see times when I had not been the person that I really wanted to be. I wasn't living always the life that I wanted to live in my uh, responsibilities as a Christian, as a person. So I made some commitments about that uh, and how I wanted to live and how I would live. I also, we didn't have a Bible all those years, and even though we asked for them weekly almost, we would bug them on that, and they they were terrified of religion. They wouldn't give us one, and finally, they let us read one for a couple hours on Saturday. One person out of the cell could go read it and take some notes. Hmm. So they did that for a while, then they quit that. But one of my commitments was to read the Bible regularly, and uh, I did, and I have uh, all these years. Uh, I read it through five times. Just reading in a year, I would read the Bible through in a year. I've done that about four or five times, and then but I just read regular and have my devotionals and prayer time. And so you
1: don't take it for granted anymore. No,
0: I don't. I really don't, and uh, I need that. I need that daily feeding that daily connection and now i've in the last few years i've learned through uh, ministry i'm involved in how to really experience god's love i knew it in my head but now i've learned to experience it in my emotions and that's been uh, so wonderful and powerful
1: hmm. now god is using you in a completely different way but mm-hmm. you're drawing upon that experience aren't you
0: yes i am um uh, the book, Leading with Honor, that title, I'm concerned about leadership overall in the country and how people don't do what they know they ought to do. I think Leading with Honor, first and foremost, is doing what you know you ought to do. You know, we we know we have the Ten Commandments. We were taught at home. We're taught at school. We have laws, and we have professional ethics, and it goes on and on. We're Boy Scouts, uh, you know, the Rotary. Uh, everybody has a— a creed and a code. Mm-hmm. So we know what to do, but out of fear, usually out of fear, people sometimes greed, but fear, people don't do what they know they ought to do. And then we all suffer for it. And to me, um, helping people understand that you cannot lead with honor without courage and courage is leaning into the pain of your fear and doing what you know you ought to do, even though you may be scared.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I can think of uh, no one more qualified to address that than you, given what you've been through and how God has prepared your own heart, Lee. Uh, what kind of audiences do you uh, speak to then?
0: All kinds. Interesting, uh, this message and this book, even the whole idea, I think the stories are so compelling that what we went through, people want to know about that. And then they're also interested in in the lessons uh, for their own application. So its uh, I've spoken to Nurses between 40 and 50 years old, and they are interested in the story. And grandmothers that are interested in the story. uh, CEOs, I've got a number of CEOs have endorsed the book, and they bring me in to speak. Uh, General officers, uh, next week I'm flying to Tucson, and the three-star general there of 12th Air Force has invited me to speak at their heritage celebration. So it it varies.
1: Mm -hmm. So do you maintain an active uh, ministry with, with the military at all? I don't
0: really have a ministry, but I do go and speak. Okay. Uh, so I'm not involved in ministry, but I do get to speak, and I share a little bit of my faith because it's just part of who I am sure. when I speak. Mm-hmm. That you know, faith in God was so important to us there, uh, to everybody, and uh, our leaders had strong faith, yeah. and that was you know the leaders there were, were so incredible because they the ones that bear they bore the brunt of the torture. And they made the rules, but then they had to go first to test them mm-hmm. time and time again. And they just kept bouncing back and standing up tall and leading with honor. Our mission was to return with honor. And these people led with honor. And I want to honor them as I speak and as I share from
1: the book. As a matter of fact, today, when we finish this conversation, you're off to address uh, someone on a military base, right?
0: That's right. Here in Dobbins Air Force Base in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think my personal mission has focused as a leadership consultant now for 15 years and a coach is focused on bringing freedom to the captives Wow! because we're all captive to some degree. Something is holding us back from the past, some message that we believe, some habits that we have, some behaviors that we do that are holding us back. So my goal is to free people to climb to the next level, Mm -hmm. to lead at the next higher level And they have to get freedom. And I literally can see, not literally, but in my mind and experience, I can see shackles falling away from people as they get freedom from things that have been holding them back. And now they're leading in a much more free
1: condition. Well, Lee, it has been a pleasure talking. We've known each other for a number of years, mm-hmm. and it's good to yeah. get reacquainted again and so excited about leading with honor this book. But as you look back over this unique life that God has led you uh, through up until this point and how he's using you now, is there, a, is there a scripture verse? Is there one of the principles from the book that you want to close with today?
0: Well, I'll just tell you, Psalm 1 was very important. I had that memorized. And, of course, Psalm 23 I had those in Psalm 100, I had those memorized. So those played a lot in my head. And then Romans 8, 28, hmm. uh, being able to know that regardless of what happened, you know, God was going to be with me and that we we're going to get through it and come through somehow. And I don't understand all that. I just know by faith I believed, and I believe that you must believe. Without belief and without faith and that you're willing to step out and take action
1: on, uh, we're pretty powerless Well, the book, which Lee has written, is titled Leading with Honor, Leadership Lessons from the Hanoi Hilton. And it was an honor to talk to Lee and through our conversation honor veterans today. If you'd like to follow up on this interview and learn more about Lee and his book, please visit us at FirstPersonInterview.com. Lee is also in demand as a speaker, and you'll find the information you need at FirstPersonInterview.com. And then if you'd like to see what's coming up in the weeks ahead, we have published the schedule online at the same website, FirstPersonInterview.com, and I hope you'll take the time to look through the archive and listen to interviews you may have missed on the radio. Both the schedule and the archive are found at FirstPersonInterview.com. We also have a Facebook page, Facebook.com slash FirstPersonInterview. Next week, you'll meet Dr. David Hunt. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next time for first person.